Let's come to God's Word. We've been doing this series on the Psalms. There's some little booklets here that we've been producing for that series on the Psalms. Number two, week two and week three are still up on the shelf there. So if you want to pick that up, you're more than welcome. Let's look at the Psalm for today, which is Psalm 51. Let's open our Bibles at Psalm 51. And let me just read from the beginning of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you only, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. And God will bless his precious word to us and to his name be the praise and the glory. Let's just have a moment's prayer. Lord, we're just conscious today of all the things we've been learning about the Psalms. We thank you for that book that really speaks to every need, to every situation. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the books of the Psalms in our Bible. And we pray, Lord, today, wherever we find ourselves, the situation of need and circumstance, that you would speak right into our hearts. That you would do a powerful work by your Holy Spirit. But we thank you especially for those places of confession and repentance, the penitentiary psalms. We give you thanks for them. And we ask you, loving God, to bring us to that place and help us to find our joy restored, to rejoice in you again, and that you might delight in the sacrifices that we would bring to you of our lives and of all that we have and are. Bless your word to us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You might want to have your Bibles open at 2 Samuel chapter 11 to begin with, because we'll be referring to that quite a lot. 
I think those of you who, who love the Word of God will be thankful that Psalm 51 is in our Bibles. I'm sure you will. I've turned to it many times. Sometimes when I feel that I've blown it, I've really messed up, I found myself reading over Psalm 51. Some people would even read it on their knees before God. That's how you feel sometimes when you come before God and you feel that you've actually blown it. And there's nothing so powerful than just thinking or seeing this man, King David, coming to that place of confession and repentance before God, as we find it in Psalm 51. As you well know, there's a background to this Psalm 51. If you look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 5, we've got this case of... Uh, <coughs> The King David's adultery with Bathsheba and the terrible thing that happened to Bathsheba husband Uriah having him killed. But 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 5 is quite interesting because it talks about David doing everything right before the Lord. It says here, for David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord, had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. It's interesting that. He had that exception written into his life story, as it were. He did everything right in all the commands of the Lord, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And what we don't realise is that when we enter into sin, whether it's the sin of adultery or some other sin, but especially the sin of sexual sins, of sensuality, that we lose out on something. We lose something. And there are at least three things that David, King David lost in his own heart and life. One thing was he lost his sensitivity to the wonderful things that God has in life. He was desensitized to sin. That's a terrible place to be because we talk about people being desensitized to human beings and they're able to do these terrible acts of violence because they themselves have watched many violent movies or they've got some kind of ideology in their mind like the chap over there in Sweden or it might just be they've had terrible violence done to them in their own homes and they seem to be desensitized to violence. They don't really care about the victim at the end of the day. And the same is true being desensitized to sexuality or to sensuality. All these kind of things that people can be so desensitized that rape victims mean nothing to the people who do this kind of thing. It's hard to imagine that people can be like that. And one of the things that David, King David lost in this terrible act of adultery was this loss of sensitivity to what God was really saying in that situation. And that can be true of all of us, no matter what the sin might be. The second thing that David lost was his discipline. He relaxed on the rigors and the drilling of military discipline that he had known all his life. He should have been, folks, at battle. 
If you look at Second Samuel chapter 11 at the first verse there, Second Samuel chapter 11, and this is the first verse of that, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, his commander, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Ramah, but David remained in Jerusalem. There are many commentators who believed he should have been out with his men. He should have been out in the battlefield. You see, David was more in danger in Jerusalem than he was on the battlefield. Nothing wrong with relaxation and relaxing our minds and our hearts and having a place where we can feel relaxed. But there's something not right about relaxing our spiritual discipline. Spiritual discipline is so important. And to relax that discipline that God has given us, the, the discipline of reading His Word, the discipline of being in the place where God's people meet, the discipline of being around the Lord's table. So important to have that spiritual discipline written into our Christian lives, our Christian understanding. Because what happened, David, but David was, even literally, he put down his armour. He laid aside his armour. And Ephesians chapter 6 says, we need to put on the armour of God. As the old hymn says, put each piece on with prayer. And David had literally laid down his armour. He should have been in the battlefield while all his men were out there fighting and okay they were doing well. David remained at Jerusalem and because of that indiscipline in his life at that moment left himself open to the enemy. He lost his sensitivity. He lost his discipline. He also lost his focus. Picture the scene, it's a twilight there, and there is Bathsheba having a bathing, and there is David looking through the window at Bathsheba. And the Bible actually says that she was beautiful. And David looks. And most people will say there's nothing wrong with that first look. You can't help the first look. But many people say it's the second look that counts. It's that fixation that really counts. And that's what seemed to happen in David's life. He had that wrong focus, that lustful fixation came over him that would not be denied. And we lose our focus simply by focusing on something else. Some other distraction in your life or in mine. And, and sometimes the, the television can do that for us. Many of you here have heard of David Frost. Those of you are a wee bit older. He was, a, he was a TV presenter. Know what David Frost said? Television is an invention that permits you to be entertained in your living room by people you wouldn't have in your home. Isn't that true? It's an invention that permits you to be entertained in your living room by people you wouldn't have in your home. And sometimes we can lose our focus, we can lose the place because of the television, because of the internet, the pornography, all the things that are a real temptation to all of us, but perhaps men in particular. And we can lose that focus. And that was what was happening here with David, because this is a, a visual society. 
It's not just the written word. This is a visual society. And there are so many things that we see that can help us to lose our focus. David lost his sensitivity. He lost his discipline. He lost his focus. There's a chorus that went like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Slowly but wholly taking control. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you ever want to pay. You see, David's life is compounded with the consequences of his sin. His adultery leads him to murder Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. First of all, he tries to get Uriah drunk. He gets him from the battlefield and he tells Uriah to go home to his wife because David has heard that Bathsheba has conceived. She's going to have a baby. And he gets Uriah to go home to his wife, but he won't go home. What does David do? He gets him drunk. He feeds him. He gets him absolutely drunk. And even, it says by some commentators, that Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Because even the husband being drunk, he wouldn't go to his wife. But he sat at the gate to protect his master, King David. In fact, it says in the Bible, in one of the passages, 2 Samuel 23, when it goes through the list of, of the mighty men of David. You know who's listed in that mighty man? That man Uriah, the Hittite. He must have been a dear friend. He was a great soldier. He was a bodyguard of King David. But he is the one that David got drunk to get him to go back to his wife. Because he wouldn't go back, what does David do? He puts Uriah to the front of the battle. He says to Joab, you make sure Uriah gets up to, Uriah gets up to the front and make sure there's nobody there to, to protect him. And Uriah gets killed. And as far as David's concerned, end of story. That's it all sorted out. It isn't really, is it? At the end of the story. And when you come to this tremendous psalm, let's just turn to this psalm 51. When you come to this psalm 51, you realise that there's not the end of the story. Because somebody comes along called Nathan. There's a, good, a lot of good Nathans around in the world and the Bible as well. Praise God. These wonderful Nathans that we find in the word of God. Nathan the prophet. That God raises up this prophet Nathan. And what is the Lord really saying to David at the end of the day? As Nathan comes and, and reveals things to him. He's saying to David, there is no cover up. Don't cover up, David. We've seen how David tried to cover up. By getting Uriah drunk and getting him killed in battle. He attempted to cover up his sin. Possibly for about a year. Yes, that's David, the psalmist. That's the man after God's own heart. Don't criticize him because we do the same thing, don't we? Sometimes we try and cover up the things that we do wrong. At the end of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, it says there that God was displeased with what David had done. And furthermore, there are grave consequences that come out of this. If you look at 2 Samuel 12 and verses 10 to 12, we find these words of prophet, the Nathan prophet. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, 
because you despised me, said the Lord. You took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord said out of your own household. I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. You see, folks, there are grave consequences to sin, even when it's confessed and even when it's forgiven. There are consequences that you can't change, that you often have to live with. And that's difficult, really difficult. We have to live sometimes with the consequences of our wrongdoing. And it can be horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And what we find here is that Nathan realises that David is not owning up to this. He's trying to cover up and so Nathan tells that story about the poor man, his little ewe lamb and he treated that ewe lamb like a member of his family. It ate from his table, says Nathan, it drank from his cup, it was like another child. There was a rich man in the town and when the traveller came to visit the rich man, the custom was that they would kill a calf or a lamb and not wanting to take one of his own lambs, he went to the poor man who had only one lamb and he took his and he killed it and cooked it and dressed it and he fed his traveller with it. David immediately was aroused. His sense of justice, his conscience was pricked and he said, that man will surely die. And in verse 6 of Second Samuel it says he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity and Nathan turns round to David and said, you're the man. And we're not talking here about lambs. Or one lamb, we're talking here about somebody's wife. And the wife that you have. And his only wife, Bathsheba. And you've taken that one wife of Uriah the Hittite. You're the man. And when David heard Nathan say, you're the man, he began to realise there are two things that he had to do about sin. Number one was this, he had to take responsibility for, look at verse 3 of Psalm 51. And verse 3 it says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. How often do we blame somebody else? Have you ever noticed you don't have to teach a child to shift the blame? It wasn't me, it was her. You don't have to teach them to shift the blame. But David had to really accept responsibility for his own. And sometimes we, we blame the devil. Now we know that the devil's involved. But we are the ones who have to resist the temptation. Or we are the ones that yield to the temptation. So we can't go and say, well it wasn't actually me, it was the devil. It was some kind of evil spirit in me that made me do that kind of thing. Don't blame me. And the second thing that David had to do was acknowledge the seriousness of his sin. Notice in Psalm 51 and verse 1, to blot out my transgressions. And here is David using this word transgression because this word transgression or transgressors is mentioned three times in Psalm 51 in verse 1 and verse 2 and transgressors in verse 13. And the word means rebellion, it means defiance against God, it's it's breaking the, the law of God in deliberate defiance. When I was a kid in the village of Blackridge, West Lothian, we used to go for walks with kids. And out from the village there was this wood and the people told us that up at the end of the wood there was a white house. 
not the President's White House. And there was a sign at the bottom of the driveway that said, No trespassing. That was a wee invitation for us as boys. So we used to go up through the woods and you could hear the twigs snapping as you took your foot. We wanted to see the White House. Why would anybody put a sign up that said, No trespassers? This was like something out of the famous five and Enid Blyton. And we were on our way to some great adventure. I saw a wee saying in the, a wee sort of thing in the Reader's Digest many years ago. This sign outside the farmer's field that says, Trespassers will be admitted free. The bull will charge later. <laughs> David uses this word trespass to express his rebellion against God. And so we find David in Psalm 51 and verse 4 saying, Against you, you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Sometimes there are people who say, well, I didn't hurt God. It was really I hurt that person or I hurt this person. But it didn't affect God. It doesn't affect my faith. It does affect God. Everything we do against another affects God. Inasmuch as you have not done it unto one of these, the least of my brothers, you have not done it unto me. God is affected by the things that we do to each other. And David realises that. David discovered that God was saying to him, don't cover up. Accept the responsibility for sin. Acknowledge the seriousness of sin. And the second thing that God was saying to David, don't give up. Don't give up. David realised in the place of prayer that you could not give up hoping in the mercy and the forgiveness of God. As you read this psalm, there are two great truths that come out of this psalm. And they're all concerning the wonderful love of God. You'll see it there in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. And here is David, he cries out for mercy and forgiveness. On what basis? The basis of God's unfailing love. You know what that word unfailing means? It means covenant. On the basis of God's covenanting his love to you and to me. And that's the basis on which he cries out for mercy and forgiveness. That word covenant that we use about the bride and the bridegroom covenanting with each other for the rest of their lives. That unfailing love of the bride and the bridegroom. And Jesus talks about this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. And Jesus is the one who has mercy and forgiveness for the sins that we commit. And it's sealed by the cross. It's sealed by the blood of Jesus. According to your unfailing love. And at the end of verse 1 it says, according to your great compassion. Folks, we can plead our cause before such a God. There's mercy and forgiveness. It comes through the unfailing love and compassion of God. Whatever's happened in your life, whatever you feel you've done wrong, please don't give up. Don't give up. 
The second truth is the completeness of that forgiveness of God. There are a number of lovely pictures in this. In verse 2, there's the idea of cleansing, like a defiled leper cleanse. And, and verses 2 and 7, the washing, like washing clothes with a stain on them. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In verse 9, the picture here is of wiping the slate clean. Blot out my iniquity. You see, God not only forgives, listen to it, He forgives completely. Hallelujah! He forgives completely. He gives us a completely new start. He cleanses the defiled life. He washes the stained garment. He wipes the slate clean. Don't give up. Here's the third thing that God says through David's prayer. He's saying, don't dry up. <laughs> Look at verse 11 of chapter 51 of Psalm 51. He says, don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was a visitor. The Holy Spirit would come upon kings and come upon prophets, sometime for a period of time. And, and Saul was the kind of person who, who lost the power of the Spirit. And David knew all about Saul, didn't he? David knew about that time that Saul had the Holy Spirit removed from him. And he's basically saying to God, don't make me like that. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, as has happened to King Saul. I don't want to dry up. He says, create in me a, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, he says in verse 10. And he wants the joy and the gladness restored. He wants renewed in the spirit. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, for David, this is not a matter of sacrifice. This is a matter of the heart. A reeking altar is no substitute for a contrite heart. Verse 16, if you do not, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And the word of God is saying to you this morning, don't dry up. Ask God to renew you in the power of his spirit. And he'll do it. And finally, God is saying something else through David's prayer. Don't opt out. Look at verse 13. And then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. The renewed life tells for God. The renewed life will praise God. It says in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Oftentimes the devil gets the lips, doesn't he? The things that we speak. Isaiah found that. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And when it came of the touch of the Holy Spirit and touch of God upon Isaiah, what does it say? These coals have touched your lips and cleansed you. My lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The renewed life knows the touch of God upon the lips. Let me close with verse 18 of Psalm 51. Have you noticed verse 18? It says, in your good pleasure make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. That obviously has a, a local context there. But folks, not only do we need to build up the broken walls of Jerusalem, but we need to build up the broken walls of relationships. The broken walls of a marriage. The broken walls of family life. He says, Lord, I want you to build up the walls of Jerusalem. And sometimes we need to say, Lord... Will you build up the walls of these broken relationships and, and broken marriages and, 
and broken families. So what has God been saying through this prayer of David in Psalm 4? Don't cover up. Accept the responsibility for sin. Acknowledge the seriousness of sin. Don't give up. God completely forgives. He cleanses the defiled life. He washes the stained garment. He wipes the slate clean. The completeness of the forgiveness according to God's unfailing love and compassion. And don't dry up. Renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart because God it simply isn't there. You'll have to create it within me. And don't opt out because then I'll teach transgressors your ways. My mouth will declare your praise. And broken walls, broken walls will be rebuilt. Is that not a fantastic psalm? I think it is. But it's even more fantastic when you find yourself in that place. The place of confession. The place of repentance. The place where you realise God still got his unfailing love and compassion. And he says, please, please, don't give up and don't opt out. But I want to help you. I want to forgive you. Let's pray.